All right, so we are working through Acts 1 and 2. So this is where we're at. Jesus appeared. He convinced the disciples about his resurrection. Then he ascended to heaven. Then leadership was established. Then the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you missed the last five weeks of church, you're caught up just like that, huh? There's something about brevity. It can happen. God can speak quickly. So that's where we're at. Now, Peter, who, who at one time had been scared to stand up for Christ or to claim Christ in front of a servant girl, he just didn't have boldness. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, he now proclaimed the gospel in what is the first known proclamation of who Jesus is after he convinced everyone about his resurrection. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And so here's kind of what occurs. There's four uh, proofs. Uh, there's four reasons that Peter is giving for Jesus as a Messiah. And I'll just tell them to you real quick. And they're, they're not the four points, but you can listen quickly. First, he just says Psalm 16 was a prophecy about the Messiah, not David. Two, he said, we have witnesses of the resurrection. Three, he said the Holy Spirit moved on Pentecost and all kinds of strange things, unusual things are happening. And that's proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And fourth, he said that David himself claimed that his descendant would be greater than him. Okay, so that's a whole mouthful. That's a lot. I know you're not, didn't process all of that, but here we go. We'll talk about it now, right? All right, the plan. Let's talk about that for a second. You know, one of the most painful things in my life most difficult things in my life is when I have to pick a restaurant with my wife. Oh man, I can feel a witness here. I mean, because it starts out like this. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? I don't care. When I actually pick a restaurant, then all of a sudden she starts caring. Then there's no care before that. So we've kind of established this rule. We, we actually went through a marriage enrichment, and this was one of the things that came out of it. So I pick three different restaurants, and I just throw things up against the wall and hope something sticks. I give her three choices, Wendy's, Blue Coast, and the Chop House. And usually, she then picks none of the three. <laughs> So she told me, she said, just give me three choices and we'll work from there. Now, here, here's the interesting thing about that. Uh, the rest of our family, you know, I have one kid, he's a boy, and, and he'll eat anything. It's crazy, man. The kid will eat any, anything we put before him. Uh, another one of them, all he wants is chicken fingers and cheese pizza. So that, that's, pretty, that's pretty simple there. But I have a 19-year-old daughter. She is just like her mom now. She cannot make a choice. Now, I, I don't want to, you know, have, have like gender stereotyping here. But could there be a trend here that no choice can be made? So it's interesting that on those times when I just, this is where we're going. I've got reservations. I'm making a plan. Let's meet there at seven, wherever that is. Uh, you know, there's going to be some complaining, perhaps, but it usually works out better. And the bigger the group is, like when we extend to my mom and her boyfriend and we extend to my sister and, and her family and my brother and his family, then someone just has to make a decision. 
And that's kind of how life is. In life that if you actually come up with a plan, make a plan, and, and say, this is where we're going, the world will get out of your way. It will. In fact, they will not only get out of your way, sometimes people will help you because people are so desperate for clarity that a plan, a plan is the avenue for accomplishment. Now, whenever you give a plan, you're always gonna have this, though. Criticism. If you pick the restaurant, someone's not gonna be happy. Anything you plan in life, and we know this part of the secret of planning is we don't know really if it's going to work. We think it's going to work and we hope it's going to work and we feel like we're making the most informed decision we can, but we're just, we're just going for it because no one else is going to make a decision. And you have to have the courage to endure criticism because if, if you want to live life without any criticism, you'll never lead. I mean, it's just, it's just the truth. If, 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 you want to be the person who can accomplish something and plan something, you're going to be criticized. Now, let's bridge it back to the scripture today. I'm feeling like we're at a, at a success seminar here for a second. Um, my, my message today is titled God of a Plan. And this is something that we forget. God has a plan to redeem the world, and it's a plan that is criticized. It's criticized greatly because in our human wisdom, in our human understanding, we all think, well, if we were God, we would save the world in a more spectacular way. If we were God, we would save, we would save the world in a more obvious way. If we were God, we would make, you know, save the world in, in a way that would remove all doubt or ambiguity. But guys, we're not God. And, and there's a reason why God has chosen this obscure Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. And he said, this is me, my son, who is the personification of God himself. And this is my representation to the world. And he had a three-year ministry. And then he had chose to go back to heaven and to send his Holy Spirit as God himself. The Holy Spirit is God himself to fill us. And now we're it. We're, we're the church here. We're here together. And so this proclamation of, of Peter said some clear things. And here's the first thing you've prob probably already figured it out is the plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This is a bold declaration. Like Peter is saying, I want, I want you to know this truth. And so I, I say him, I echo Peter. And I'm, I'm just telling you, fellow Sumner County residents, Tennesseans, hear these words. Hear these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as, know, as you know yourself. Though he was delivered up according to God's, now look at this part, determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Now, there's several things that I want, want us to observe about ourselves and about others. Is lawless people still accomplish the work of God when God's in charge? We, we know that it's not God's will to be lawless because 
Laws, good laws are inspired by values. They're, they're inspired by the Ten Commandments, we would say. They're, they're, just, they're inspired by a moral code. And so we know that like, if everyone followed good laws and, and, and just laws, that God would be glorified. But here, Peter's saying, guys, listen, God foreknew, he understood the plan. Jesus was not an accident. And I'm gonna prove this to you by saying that even when lawless men, and, and really that's you and I, when, when people who, who, who aren't caring for God's ways, but our own ways, they put him on a cross and they killed him. So this first public proclamation from Peter is saying this, Jesus was planned out. He was not an accident. He was not a plan B. He was not an afterthought. God did not look and say, well, this Jesus is pretty moral, and so maybe he now is prepared to be the king of the world, or he's prepared to be the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. Before the foundations of the world, before the earth was even created, Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is a son of God, which means he is God equivalent. He was with God at the beginning. That's why God wasn't lonely before creation, because the Trinity is a, is a sign of perfect fellowship in the Godhead. And this Jesus who was foreknown, and this Jesus who is a creator of the world, this Jesus who voluntarily came to the world, voluntarily submitted to the cross, this is something that God planned ahead of time. So Peter is telling the people ahead of time, there is a plan. There is a plan, and it's a plan that God wants them to know. Symbolic leadership is so important. So all it, you, you cannot get away from symbolic leadership in any organization, in any, any type of civic gathering. It's like, okay, who's in charge or, you know, who carries the legacy? Like, let's say our president, our governor, we know that in the United Kingdom, there's even a symbolic leadership. The, the, the king, the monarch, the queen doesn't really have ruling power, but uh, she has a lot of symbolic power and symbolic leadership. Now, something that's very clear through Scripture that would be very clear to the people who heard Peter preaching is the idea of David's throne. That's why I want you to write down the, the phrase, the throne. The Messiah had to come through one line. The Messiah had to come through one family, and that was the dynasty of David. David, his descendant, had to be the Messiah. So Peter, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, is now going to give another proof that Jesus is the Messiah by, by saying, David, David pointed to this Jesus that you crucified. Now, this is important. Now, we didn't read this passage when Pastor Jennifer was, was leading you in scripture reading for the sake of brevity. But Acts chapter 2, David here is quoting Psalm 16, and now we can read it together. For David says of him, so David is saying these things, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Now look at this part, because this is an important phrase in verse 27. Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see Decay. Hades can mean there either the afterlife or the actual grave. And in this case, it's applied to the actual grave. You won't abandon me in the grave. You won't allow your Holy One to see decay. 
You have revealed paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. So this was a psalm that was familiar to people. And they looked to David like, like we would look to George Washington or we would look to Abraham Lincoln, but even with more depth because there was a spiritual connection and there was a religious connection and there was a national identity there. And, and now Peter, after quoting the familiar Psalm 16, gives explanation. He says in 29, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is born dead and buried, now watch this, and his tomb is with us today. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, and he quotes again out of Psalms 116, he was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. So basically, Peter's saying this, David talked about, in Psalm 16, you won't let my body decay. And look, we know where his tomb is. His body's decaying right now. Should we go for a field trip to go see this? So what was David saying? David was saying, there's another that's coming. There's another that's after me. There's another descendant. That There's another one. When, when he was prophesying in Psalm 16 and he was singing a song of prophecy, he wasn't talking about himself. He was looking to another. Now, for those of us here today, we're like, okay, all right. I'm tracking with you, Aaron, but what does this mean to me? Well, it means a whole lot to you because this is the explanation of the gospel because Jesus is the one. Jesus is the awaited one. We're not just a branch of a religion. We're not just a, a shoot of Judaism. We're just not an expression of, of people who think we'll pick Jesus. He's, there's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. He, he's just one of another rabbi. No, the claims of Jesus himself. And now, through Peter, one of his, his, his primary spokesmen as an apostle is saying, listen, he is the one. There's no one to compare him to. Jesus is the only one. So then he goes on and, and he quotes another psalm that starts in verse 34 here. And, and you won't see 34 on the screen, but it says, he said, I said, the Lord said to my Lord, going on to verse 35, I will make your enemies your footstool. So he is now speaking about this Messiah to come who, who is not going to just simply be one who teaches, one who, who uh, explains the Torah, one who has a small following that flashes and then he dies and then we just wait for another good prophet. He's talking about a Messiah who's going to rule as king of all kings Lord of all lords, in a kingdom that's more powerful than Rome, in a kingdom that's more powerful than Alexander the Great in, in Greece, and a, a king that's more powerful than the Babylonians who would conquer Israel just a few years later and would conquer Jerusalem. He's going to have a kingdom that, that is stronger than communism, is stronger than fascism, is stronger than any other force on this earth, is stronger than Islam. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he is not one who rules and reigns through military might. He's not one who rules and reigns through political maneuvering. He's not one who rules and reigns over capital 
capitalistic expression where the accumulation of wealth dominates certain classes. No, he is the Jesus who is for all. He's for the rich. He's for the poor. He's for the powerful. He's for the weak. He's for those who live in freedom and those who live for oppression. That's why you can follow Jesus in any country, in any place, in any social situation because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he has made everything his footstool. That means that every problem, Jesus just puts his foot on. I'm not going to because I like that. But he puts his foot on it and just says, I'm just going to rest on this problem because I'm over this problem. I'm just going to rest on this problem because I can conquer this problem. And this is the assurance that we have. And so when Peter proclaims this under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he is changing the whole paradigm, the whole way we see God. So how could this be? How can this idea that the kingdom is here now? Because we believe that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is among us now. We see a foretaste of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that's present and it's still coming with greater, greater uh, authority and, and, and greater understanding. The scripture says itself, we're like, the, we're like people who are pregnant. We, we, we have these contractions that get, keep getting closer and closer together. It's just like more of the kingdom's coming. Like we're more understanding, more power in the Holy Spirit, more authority over kingdoms of darkness. Uh, there, there's, there's more advancements in places where the gospel has not been. The kingdom's coming and coming and it's getting closer and closer and closer. We already have it now, but we're going to get more of it as we walk in the glory of the Lord. This is, this is what this is about. Now, how could this happen? Write this down, the proof. Here's the proof. The proof is this. That's, that's point number three. The proof is the resurrection. The proof is the resurrection. We already read the scripture, but we'll read that again. Acts 2.24, God raised him up. Now look at the, the, the wording of this. This is, this is going to just be such good news to your spirit. Ending the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by death. We know that our greatest fear is death. Our greatest fear is death. And I, I don't belittle those who have had closer encounters with death than I have. And I don't belittle what you've been through. So I just say this with all the encouragement I can have. I, I don't want to say this in an in a, um, immature and irresponsible way. But with God's help, we can just grieve differently than the world grieves. The scripture tells us that. With God's help, we can not fear death in the way that the world fears death. I know, I know that's easy for me to say when I'm healthy right now. I know it's easy for me to say maybe when I'm not encountering that with, with a close family member present. So I say that with great compassion. And, and I declare God's word over you. I declare God's word over you. I don't declare the experience that we have out of self-will. Like, like a, we, we, are, we are people that we face death because of willpower. And we overcome. We know we don't do that. It's by the word of the Lord. It's by the word of the Lord, the promise of the Lord, because we're people of resurrection. We're people of resurrection. Jesus was resurrected first. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And that means that the rest of us, we will not die. We will live forever. Not because we're a bunch of little gods, because we're not. Because we're submitted to the only one true God. And he's the first fruit of resurrection. And because he was resurrected, we will rise again. Because he's alive, we will never die. We may pass from this life to the next life, but we won't stay. And, and, and we won't go to a state of, of annihilation. We won't go to a state of unawareness 
awareness. Be, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our bodies itself, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, will be, be risen up also. And we will rise again to be with Christ. Not because we are trying to be gods, but because we know the God. And this was an important issue with Jesus. Jesus himself was talking to the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And and the Pharisees, we were always picking on the Pharisees, but they actually believed in the resurrection. And he's like, I'm more with them than I am with you guys. Because it was very important, Jesus said, we have to believe in the resurrection because he was about to be resurrected. And so, and so this, this was an issue. He's like, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be resurrected. So this is an important issue. So now back to Peter. Peter says, here is the proof. Here is the proof. David's still in his grave. David's the king. But he said, talking in the future, he said, you won't let your holy one see decay. And now we know this Jesus who has been resurrected. Look at verse 32. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Who was he talking about? He was talking here about the 120 who were at the upper room at the day of Pentecost, people who had experienced power, people who had felt the wind, people who had seen the fire, people whose language was changed. This is not something that happens when there's no resurrection. This doesn't happen in the natural. You can't just plan for that to happen. This happens when Jesus himself, who conquered death, Hades in the grave said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And when my Holy Spirit comes, it's going to be transformational. It's going to let you know that what I taught wasn't just something ordinary. It was supernatural, extraordinary. It was kingdom changing. It was universe altering. This is what Jesus did. And so God raised this Jesus and we, the 120, are witnesses of this. Therefore, verse 33 since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. The Holy Spirit is one of the proofs that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit descended. Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who fills us with the Holy Spirit. I want you to write this scripture down. It's not on your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. Write it down, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 6. There's where Paul also claimed that 500 people saw Jesus at one time. 500 people saw Jesus at one time. This is not something limited to three on the mountain of transfiguration. This is not limited to just the 11 plus the one of Matthias, the 12. This was 120. This was 500. This was probably many, many more who saw Jesus himself. And this is proof that he was and is the Messiah. So here's the last thing I want you to write down is the declaration. The declaration. This is powerful. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty. The, the, the language here and the, the richness of the language for those who are, who are scholars in the Greek even jumps out even more. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, I've read what the scholars have said. And this is imperative, bold language, attention-grabbing language. And it's saying... Therefore, let there be no mistake. Let there be just no wavering. Let there be no doubt. 
Let there be actually no slippage on this. This is what that, that, that word is communicating. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty. That's the word I was referring to. Let them know with certainty, no slippage. Let them know that God has made this Jesus. Now look how, look how confrontational this is. Who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Oh, this is a powerful proclamation of the gospel. This is a powerful proclamation and declaration of the gospel. And I want you to know this, is that when you come to church on Sundays, and when you sing the songs that our worship leaders prepare, and when you open up your Bibles or you find your scripture on your phone, and when, if you choose to come to the Lord's table, or if you choose to, to pray with someone, or if you, you choose to just extend a handshake of love to someone and, and have that human connection with someone, you are witnesses. You are declaring with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom my sins crucified, who, who my sins held him to the cross, but God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. I want you to stand with me in the attitude of prayer. What we do, guys, I wanted to, I wanted to take this scripture out of Acts chapter two and, and, and preach it to you with passion to, to get a sense of, of what the hearers were listening to when, when Peter confronted them and he confronted them and he, and he, he said that things have changed that the way we've thought up till now, we can't think that way anymore. In light of what God has done through Jesus, there's proof. There's proof people have seen him. David, David talked about him. You can go see David decay now, but you can't see Jesus decay because he's not in the grave. And David talked about him. And then now, I, I know 120 of us have just experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And later on, Paul said, there's 500 people who saw him face to face. And then he says this, now we know that this Jesus whom you crucified has made him Lord and Messiah. And we declare this. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that's what we do. We declare who Jesus is with our life. We declare who Jesus is with our presence in church. We declare who Jesus is at the table of the Lord. We are witnesses. We are embodiments of the gospel. We are those who reflect the glory of God in what we do. Listen, what happens here at CIL is big business in the eyes of God. This is something we are not just those who observe religion. We're not those who just put in our time. We are those who make a declaration with our very life and our very worship that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. There's no other way. There's no other comparison. We don't say that in a prideful, haughty way. We say that in a hopeful, inviting way. He is the way. There is no doubt. There is no turning. He is the life. He is the resurrection. And I am putting my whole life into his hands. That's why I give him everything. I don't give him everything because I'm just trying to qualify myself for, for heaven as if, you know, God hears my life so I can somehow get into heaven. That's too small of a vision who our God is. I'm giving my life to him because compared to every other thing in the world, there is no comparison. The, the matchless revelation of who Jesus is, he is our greatest, greatest leader our greatest hope. He is the one who comes to us in the most dark 
circumstance that we have and just the mention of his name changes the atmosphere of the room. And I just want, I want to say this, some of you, there's a very dark place that you are seeing right now. It may be your own bedroom. It may be a hospital room. It may be a, a place at, at a nursing home that just feels like a darkness is when you walk into it. I don't know what it is. It may be a vehicle. Can I just say, would you just start speaking the name of Jesus over that room? Speak the name of Jesus in that hospital room. Speak the name of Jesus in that vehicle. Let me tell you something, that place that you think is so dark that, that religion can't overcome it, the name of Jesus, that little light will overcome the darkest place. And you have to believe that the same Jesus that Peter declared to those people centuries ago is the same Jesus that I'm declaring to you today. It's the Jesus that can change any situation. It's the Jesus that can step in to places where you didn't think there was any hope. It's the Jesus who can give life where death has been spoken because the the resurrection. That's why, because Jesus, when he came out of the grave, it wasn't a one-time story. It was an everyday reality. That's who Jesus is. Father, we come to you now. We thank you for the stirring, the stirring of your people. Lord, you've stirred us today by your word. You've stirred us today. And I just, my hope is maybe in this passage in Acts chapter two, that Sometimes we can read over quickly to get over to, to something that may feel more interesting to our natural mind. I pray that today that these verses would mark my brothers and sisters. And when they go back to Acts chapter 2, they would see your plan. They would see your power. They, they would see, oh God, your involvement, Lord. They would see what you're doing. And Lord, I pray that this word would mark them for the glory of God. And we, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes responding to this word. We've created time in the service for you to respond to the Lord. And you can do it several different ways. You can just stay where you're at and just have personal time of prayer. But also to your right, to your left, there's communion elements also in the back. Communion elements are available to you. You can take those. When your heart is ready, you can eat the bread and drink the cup. I won't give further instructions about that. Also here at the middle of the sanctuary. I'll be presenting communion by intention, which is when you take the bread and you dip it into the common cup. And it's another way to connect with the presence of the Lord. These are symbolic acts. The bread and the cup are symbolic, but we believe that there's presence and anointing when we go to the Lord's table. But some weeks, Christians have good reasons not to take communion and you're under no obligation to do so. And you may wanna pray with someone you love. You may wanna spend some time by yourself. You may want to get into a group. However it is, just in a few minutes, probably, probably five minutes or so, I'll come and give our benediction so that we can depart. But if you're able to stay, would you just use this time to connect with the presence of the Lord? Maybe you want to get your Bible back out and read over those passages and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you through the passage today. So Father, we come to you now, and as we have declared with the music today and with our love today, and as I've tried to declare through the, through the reading of your scripture today, the greatness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. Lord, I pray that this response time would connect our hearts to your presence. I pray that everything everyone needs, they would receive. Because Jesus, when we have you, we have everything we need. When we have you, Jesus, we have everything we need, Lord. So, Lord, problems we're carrying, uh, God, emotional um, emotional needs that we have. We look to you, God. We thank you for life. I, I pray against the spirit of death here, God. I pray against, Lord, this, um, this spirit of self-destruction. And, and, and I'm just, we, we had a lot of energy at this at the 9 a.m. We won't spend a lot of time on this now. I'm just gonna say this right now. Self-destruction, we resist you in Jesus' name.
Um, any thoughts of suicide be gone in Jesus' name. And we release the life of God. And the Lord wants you to know that, that, su- that, 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 that thoughts of self-destruction come from the enemy. Jesus says, uh, Jesus warned us that Satan is here to steal and to kill and destroy. And he doesn't just want to steal and kill and destroy your life. He wants to destroy the life of those you love. And that's why this attack on self-destruction. And we just resist that in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we just tell self-destruction and those thoughts leave in Jesus' name. We lose life right now. Would you just agree with me? We lose life in this place. We lose the life of God in this place. We, we say new life in Jesus' name. New life in Jesus' name. The enemy can't have the people God has foreknown and chosen. The enemy can't have them. The enemy cannot have them. They do not belong to the enemy. They belong to the Lord. And you need to be reminded today that you belong to the Lord. You're his. You belong to the Lord. You don't belong to another. You don't belong even to yourself. If you're, if you know Jesus, you belong to the Lord. And so we resist that spirit of self-destruction. I just, I, I just pray that off the people in this room, off our families, and even off our, our very nation, God, we just believe, Lord, Lord, that, that in, the, in the spiritual warfare, you can break that. And we believe that. So now we turn to you, Jesus. Father, we dedicate these elements to you. We dedicate these next few minutes to you for the glory of Jesus and his name. In your name we pray.